Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We're joined today by a Broadway veteran who has been in the Who's Tommy, Titanic, a year or so ago in Assassins, and now is slaying them, pun definitely intended, <laughs> as uh, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd himself, Michael Cerveris. Michael, welcome to Downstage Center. Thanks, John. How are you? You've played some pretty dark characters recently. How, how do you like playing a dark character like Sweeney? Well, I I love playing the dark characters because they're so you know complex and and interesting and and certainly not your bland kind of affable guys. And I think in my daily life it's good because I get to work out all of my aggressions and frustrations on stage, and then I can be a pleasant person at home. <laughs> and. Uh, our understanding is that Sweeney Todd was, in fact, the first Broadway show you ever saw. It was. I, uh, my dad brought my sister and I, um, and then my brother soon after, to uh, to see a preview, I think, of the original production with Len Carey. You're how old when you saw it? I was, uh, what was it, 79? So, right. so I was 18. Okay. Um, and, yeah, because I think I saw it before my birthday in November, so... Um, so and it just just from that first whistle, my 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 life was forever changed. Well, did you at that time have a desire to be on stage? Did you know you wanted to do this? I I had been doing theater since I was really pretty small. My dad was a university professor, and so when they needed a kid for the university production, I was the kid often. Um, but the first <laughs> the first thing I ever did was one of the little prince's friends in Caucasian Chalk Circle. So when you start out with Brecht at, like, you know, <laughs> You were not doing graders, three little pigs like <laughs> no, most exactly. kids in their first appearances. No, it was kind of like the the course was set. But I, I resisted it for years, even through college and into college. I I did theater, uh, community theater as a, as a child and young boy and um, did some summer stock theater with my dad because my dad musical directed at, different uh, summer stock theater companies, Jenny Wiley in Kentucky and some other places. Um, so so I was around it and grew up with it and did it in school and, and went to college to Yale intending to study theater but chose not to go to a conservatory where I was just going to do theater uh, because I wasn't certain that that was what I wanted to do. And I also felt like it, if I was going to play all kinds of people in my life, I should go to school with all kinds of people rather than just other people who wanted to do the same thing I was doing. Um, so I, I was struggling with it and fighting it and, um, and certainly never thought I would be in musicals because I, well, Yale didn't have a lot of technical training, really, the program that I, that I was part of. And um, this is undergraduate. This is undergrad. Yale. It's not at the drama school. Exactly. And, and their intention was really to sort of prepare you to go to graduate school where you would then get the technical training because acting's really not quite like being a musician or a dancer where you have to be studying the technique from a young, young age. It's, you know, there's not, not quite that same requirement. It's a little more true perhaps if you want to be in musical theater you know the dance training helps but um but vocally you you don't want to do too much stuff early on because your voice is still developing so much when you're young um so i i expected to be and was for the longest part of my career uh a straight theater actor and and just did dramatic things and shakespeare and sam shepherd and stuff like that um but it was really seeing Sweeney Todd and seeing Len Cario in particular that made me think, 
oh, well, you can be a dramatic actor and be in a musical still. Even though it was it was years before I actually was in a musical professionally, you know, which would have been Tommy, actually, was the first thing I did in that way. Um, but I did, <laughs> I auditioned for every touring company of Les Mis and every replacement uh, person for Les Mis, and every time it would come down to they wanted somebody who was a singer who could act, and I was an actor who could get by, you know, as a singer. But in Tommy, you are and were a rock musician who could play guitar pretty well, well and perform rock music. So did that have some bearing on getting that, that job? That really is how I ended up in musical theaters, sort of through my, my passion for and, and long history with rock and roll. Um, I kind of came in through the back door in that way. And I played a David Bowie song, accompanied myself on guitar for the audition, uh, Young Americans. And it just happened that for this particular thing and Des and Pete's conception of it, they wanted somebody who genuinely was a rock musician and and also genuinely was a, an actor. And I happened to have those, you know, those two attributes at the time. So in addition to asking how you started in theater, how did you really start performing rock music? Because you've you've recorded completely separate from your musical theater career, yeah. you've played with some fairly extraordinary people. How did that come to be? Well, I had always... I first began playing guitar because my father, who was a music professor, insisted that all of the children study at least one instrument for a year. And we could choose what it was, and we could choose whether we wanted to continue beyond that. Um, so we... I chose I chose the violin actually to begin with and played that for a few months, which now I wish I had kept up because it would probably be useful in Sweeney. Um, but uh, but in fourth grade, playing the violin really wasn't exactly the cool thing to do. So I switched to guitar and finished out my my year of study playing guitar. Then put it away for a few years and and just kind of didn't pick it up at all. And then. I think started getting into music sort of in my early teens, like probably like 13 by that point. Um, um, so I picked it up again and kind of retaught myself based on what I remembered from before and um, and was really a big fan of rock music, so just played in lots of bad high school cover bands. and uh, And in a weird way, it was that that kind of introduced me to musical theater because... I was a huge Deep Purple fan, and their singer, Ian Gillen, was the original Jesus in the, that original brown recording, you know, the brown-covered recording. Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. right. The, uh, the uh, concept album. Yeah, the concept yeah. album before they did the show. And so I bought that because my, one of my favorite rock singers was on it, and um, and that introduced me to musical theater. And, and so the, it's in a weird way, they've always been kind of melded for me because there's an irony in that there are people of course listeners to this station kids around the country who long to make it on broadway not only have you made it on broadway but you're a rock performer who's gotten to play with bob mold of husker du you've played with stone temple pilots of course through tommy you got to know pete townsend and play with Mm. him i mean you've achieved two musical (laughs) dreams not just the one i know so there's somebody else out there with you know with neither dream who's you know i've i've stolen both of them <laughs> uh it's it's the weirdest thing my career and people ask me how 
how for career advice or career strategy advice and i've i've never been good at having a strategy i've always just sort of done what i thought was either interesting or challenging or terrifying anything that i thought was just too scary to even attempt that was what i knew i had to try to do um and it, and it's all to me it all makes sense the the rock people that i've worked with understand and appreciate the performance aspect of what they do and um a lot of the theater people that i've worked with including people like sondheim i've said this a couple times and i've never never really heard his reaction to it but i really think of him as a, a kind of rock and roll spirit and it's you know he's expressing it in in this particular way but but in you know in his in his groundbreaking kind of convention um uh, defying way, I, 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 f- I don't feel like it's that strange doing Sweeney Todd every night, and then playing with Bob Mould. Like those, those things are of a of a piece to me. Well, especially this Sweeney because it's such. I mean, not that Sweeney has ever been a soft and mushy piece right. or you a know touchy, typical feel music, good musical, a feel good musical. But the fact of the matter is, this version is particularly spiky, particularly. Uh, aggressive in its way. Yeah. Um, as someone who saw it first, you know, as a young man who saw it seven times mm-hmm. uh, in in that production, this new production is a deconstruction in some ways of Sweeney Todd. And there are some who've suggested that if you don't actually know Sweeney Todd, it might be difficult to understand it if this is your first time out. And I'm wondering how you respond to that. Well, I've heard people say that, but those are generally people who saw the original one and are seeing it again and thinking that other people who've never seen it are not going to get it. I've talked to a great number of people, and a lot of my friends, especially people who are not given to going to theater in general, music theater especially, who got everything and, and enjoyed every bit of it. I think... Um, I think when you don't know what to expect and you don't have expectations, you you take what you're given at face value, and the entire story is there, and every element is there in many ways easier to follow and, and clearer uh, because there are not so not so many other elements taking away from it. I mean, a lot of John Doyle, our director's whole intention was simply to tell the story, and I I understand the the feeling that it's a deconstruction but but we didn't set out to deconstruct it we set out to just go to the absolute source and just build from there so it, it wasn't so much a case of taking apart a previous production because there was enormous respect for that production from everybody involved in our show a lot of us had seen it a lot of us had grown up on it and um and you know, there's reverence and and respect for all of that. This was, but in the same way that how many productions of Hamlet have there been, and and you just go back to the play on the page and you work from there, and that's essentially what John and the rest of us have done. Well, do you see, or do you do you get the sense at all that people who are seeing this production and seeing Sweeney Todd itself for the first time, as opposed to those who have seen it in previous productions, see it the same or see it differently? Um, I think I think p- 
people have had a variety of, of experiences. I've had people who saw that original production come back to me and say, you know, I feel like I saw it for the first time this time, or I understood the story in ways that I never understood it before because I was so taken with the scale of the whole production, and, and I didn't actually get the story in the way that I do here because the focus is so intently on, on the story. Um, and then there are other people who get baffled by some of the the scenic elements. And we do make big leaps, and you have to be paying a fairly close attention to to the story to get it because there, are, um, there aren't necessarily some big visual cues that you had in the original production. Um, but our audiences are so... I've never I've never played for audiences like this, and I've played for a lot of audiences, but they're absolutely silent through long stretches of the play and not in a boarded... I mean, it's a silence with no coughing, no candy wrappers, no none of that, because people are so involved and engaged. And, and then when the laughter comes or when the, the gasps of, of surprise come, it, it feels like you're in a funhouse. And like people, people who don't know the story at all are suddenly discovering elements of it that are surprises. People who have seen it before, some people have said they, they got so caught up in the story, they forgot that they knew that this or that surprise was coming so that when it came, it actually was a surprise again. So, and Prior to the, the current production, one of the um, concerns, one of the, can they really do this type of yeah. uh, feelings was, can they really get rid of the orchestra and have the ten actors on stage play the instruments and do it well and all that? Yeah. And then the reviews were overwhelmingly positive that, hey, it really works. And in many of the reviews, kind of the same theme came out, that they're really hearing Sondheim's music, all the nuances, better because it's not being covered up by a big orchestra. Do you feel... I I feel that that's true. Um, I think Sarah Travis, who did the musical arrangements and the reorchestrations, did an absolutely brilliant, extraordinary job, unlike anything I've really encountered before, in in being respectful to Jonathan Tunick's amazing original orchestrations, but, you know, distilling that, really, to to its essence. And when you have a single violin doing a line, you you hear all of the tones of that violin, and you aren't just you don't get a wash of strings. You get one. It becomes like another voice in the piece, and there's more room to hear the actual voices as well, as well as the instrumental voices. So you get you get the interplay of the instruments, I think, much more clearly, and you certainly get the interplay between the singers and the instruments because you can hear the lyrics in a way that you couldn't before, and you hear the, how the melodies all interweave and intertwine. But as we talk about this in relation to Sweeney Todd itself, it's worth noting that John Doyle, who directed this production, uses this form on all of the musicals he does, where it is always the actors playing the instruments. So it was not a singular idea to illuminate Sweeney. Right. Did he talk at all just about either how he developed that technique or how he feels it informs all musicals. He's going to be doing a company out in Cincinnati. Uh, Rallis Bars is going to be in that. So I'm wondering if if he's talked about that approach generally. Um, Well, he he said that he he works... um, He was one of the founders, I believe, uh, certainly has been uh, a founding part of the Watermill Theater uh, outside London in Newbury. Is it Newbury, uh, England? And... um, and it's a small not-for-profit theater, and they wanted to do Candide, and but 
they thought there's no way we can afford to do Candide with all those singers and all that orchestra. And he, it, it dawned on him that maybe trying to do it with people who could sing and play at the same time would be a way to do it. And so they did, and it and it worked. And he sort of refined that over the years. Um, but I think what what he's discovered is that it it makes for a kind of storytelling that is so organic and and simple and pure in a way and it and it helps you focus on just what what's really essential what do you really need i remember when we started doing um uh mrs lovett's first song the worst pies in london and you you begin as we all do thinking okay, we have to have a rolling pin and we need to have some dough and we need to have some flour. And, and little by little, we we just started taking things away. And Patty and John uh, realized that, well, well, why do we need to have dough, actually? do we? I mean, we're singing about pies and we're singing about this. And you know, why do we, do we need to have a rolling pin? I mean, does she have to be making things? You make assumptions because of productions you've seen before. And we discover that, no, actually, she tells you everything you need to know in the song, and it's not really about her making pies, necessarily. Um, so, and in the same way, the the instruments being a part, another character, another texture, um, it makes us, as an acting ensemble, have to connect in such an extraordinary way because we have no conductor. We're just listening to each other. And <laughs> it was... Um, challenging in the beginning but but it made us really connect to each other on a deep deep level so that i think the acting and the playing together becomes so connected and such an i've been in i've been in a number of extraordinary ensembles but this is really a whole other level of of that kind of connection and i think it's because of the fact that we're being instrumentalists together too, and I think that's one of the things that John particularly likes about this way of working. And it's worth noting that in the English production, the character of Sweeney was the one performer who did not play an instrument. So right. in in developing the role here, you didn't even have John Doyle's preconceived notions, perhaps, of what that character would do because you are playing, right. whereas is the English actor did not. Right, which which I believe was simply because he didn't have you know. An instrument that he played, um, so he's not. I mean, John's not dogmatic about anything, which is another wonderful thing about working with him. There are no hard and fast rules, and he'll he'll change anything that needs to be changed in order to tell the story more clearly and to to just get out of the way of of the piece itself. We've been we've been talking about uh, Sondheim's music. We've been talking about the fact that the ten actors play the instruments. Why don't we, uh, I was going to say visually, orally demonstrate that. The brand new CD of Sweeney Todd has just been recorded on None Such, and you do a number of different songs, obviously in the show and on the CD. Why don't you pick one, set it up, tell us how it plays in the show for those few people on the planet that may not be familiar with the story. Well, I think uh, Epiphany is a good, is sort of a uh, in-at-the-deep-end kind of choice for uh, for Sweeney. It's, It's at the point in the show where he thinks he's he's about to get revenge on the judge and kill the judge and then Antony the sailor breaks in and disrupts his plans and and his frustration sort of puts pushes him over the edge to madness and um this sort of this is the turning point where he goes from being a 
justified, wronged man to a little psychotic. Sweeney Todd himself, Michael Servers, currently starring on Broadway at the Eugene O'Neill Theater as Sweeney Todd in the production of that name, Sondheim's work, and that, of course, Epiphany. Michael, you've been talking, we've been talking some about your early career and, and then obviously Sweeney Todd, but I, I do want to jump back to your early career because, as you mentioned, you were doing dramatic theater. You were doing heavily classical roles mm-hmm. in most cases. You had one, which is the opportunity when I first met you, which was which was playing Crow in Sam Shepard's Tooth of Crime, right. which, which sort of prefigured even going into the rock and roll era yeah. um, for you. But But at this point... Have you gone so much into being a musical performer that that you don't have the opportunity to go back to those classical roots? I've I've been saying for about oh, when was Tommy nineteen ninety two I've been saying for about thirteen years that I'm going to stop doing musicals and you know do straight plays again and remind people that you know that's what I started out doing and um, in fact I got to the point where I said to my agents after. Um, after coming back from London, did Hedwig in London after doing it in L.A. and New York first. And um, and I did a TV series in London that was for Fox. It was called The American Embassy. And so I'd stayed there for a while. Um, when I came back to the States, I said, okay, this time I'm really serious. I've, I've loved the work that I've done in musicals, but I don't. It's, it's exhausting, and it's really... Um, takes over your life doing a musical just because of the demands of of the vocal demands and and the physical demands that it makes on you and um so I you know I just wanted to be able to talk for a while and uh I said the one thing okay if I mean if there was a Sondheim musical I would want to do that because I hadn't up to that point done any professionally but I figured a how much Sondheim was being produced at that time and be what were my chances of being in it. So I thought it was a safe a safe kind of concession to them. Well, cut to now, where I've done sort of nothing but for the past four or five years. And but it's very interesting. Uh, in an old interview around the time of Tommy, you referred to that role as sort of being Hamlet. And I read a more recent interview where you're talking about Sweeney Todd and saying, well, that's sort of playing Hamlet. <laughs> you do keep coming back to that. Is every role Hamlet? Well, I, I think for for male actors, I think in, in some ways that's, you know, that is the kind of benchmark thing. Um, you know, I may... I may be getting too old to play Hamlet at this point, you know. He was a student, after all. Um, but uh, but I think the great thing about having done Sondheim musicals is they are real actor challenges. So um, so it's it's been satisfying to me to do these these kinds of things. Um, I did do uh, Wintertime, the Chuck Me play at Second Stage and McCarter with David Schweitzer directing, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, I love I love his plays, and and this was just you know a wacky, really really fun uh, out there kind of thing. And then I also did Fifth of July. I took over for Robert Sean Leonard um, in Joe Bonney's production at the Signature Theater, and that was well, that was my first experience with taking over for somebody, which was extremely difficult, especially in a really kind of fine tuned ensemble, and to be the one new guy plugged into that. I mean, they were so fantastic um, in the way that they they gave me the room that I needed, but but also sort of helped me pick up and and pick up where Robert had had left off. Um, but it was great 
doing a play. Um, and I do look forward to more of that. I do, you know, I put it out there and I, and I try to audition for stuff. There's a certain, uh, aspect of, it's not always easy to cross back and forth from musicals to straight plays and, and people have preconceived notions about who you are or what you're capable of because they've seen you do these other things. Um, Again, I think I get a little latitude because they're Sondheim shows, so it's, um, you know, I think people in the straight theater world do understand that, you know, you have to be an actor to do that. But um, uh, but I do look forward to, to not having to, to warm up and, and wake up in the morning and, <laughs> and think about, you know, whether I can hit whatever note I need to hit. Although I've got to say, in Sweeney Todd, the later I stay out and... The, the more I have a cold, it seems to just help the lower part of my <laughs> range. So it's okay. Well, in a sense, though, Sondheim uh, musicals are really not your typical Broadway musical, a light, frothy, yeah. you know, song and dance type of musical. They're really plays set to music. If you yeah. think of the storyline, Sweeney Todd and Assassins, most notably for you, Absolutely. another Sondheim work you've been in, yeah. um, Assassins, like Sweeney Todd, very dark characters in that show. Yeah. And a real meaty sort of a role for you to get into as John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Booth, I mean, there are so many similarities between Booth and Sweeney and that, you know, both both people, ha- both of them perceive themselves to have been slighted or, or have placed themselves in opposition to authority and, and have a righteous indignation and a, and a need to take matters into their own hands. Um, you know, we can debate about whether it's justified or not, but uh, um, but there is a similar kind of fire and, and single-mindedness and, and passion that I think drives both of them. And they're both sort of outsiders, too. Well, in the case of Sweeney Todd, you had seen the other productions seven times or thereabouts. Yeah. In the case of interpreting John Wilkes Booth for Assassins, how did you approach that role? Well, I did a lot of historical research, actually. Um, Joe Montello, our director, encouraged us to do a lot of that. And that's one thing I love about acting is the chance to to use it as a as a way into studying something that you don't know, whether it's whether you're playing a historical character or not. It's, if you could just be learning about a time period or whatever. Um, and so I did a lot of, you know, I watched Ken Burns' Civil War series, which I had never seen, which is extraordinary. Um, and I did a lot of reading about, um, uh, there. there's a collection of Booth's letters um, that I read that was fascinating and um, some biographies as well. Um, the The difficult thing with doing research into a historical character is, what's been distilled out of that person's life for the play is not necessarily strictly accurate all down the line or even tonally accurate necessarily. Um, so you, you're you bound to run into things that just don't fit in, in the character in the show, even though they were part of the person's life. And sometimes it can be trickier learning these things and having to forget them or not know them than not learning them in the first place. Well, how um, how accurate are the lyrics to the song? Uh, well, they, related to the real person, John. They, Wilkes they actually are are very accurate, uh-huh. um, except for the one lyric which I never mentioned to Steve. Um, he uh, the balladeer sings, uh, 
27 years of age, but actually he would have been 27 in that year, but he didn't live long enough to see his 27th He's birthday. Really 26 so, at the time. Yeah, yeah, but 26 years of age just didn't scan as well, I'm sure. So 27 has a better ring to it. Exactly, and that's you know that's when art steps in and you know makes life better than it there, actually there's, is. There's a term for that, dramatic license. That's I think. exactly <laughs> it. Exactly, and Steve has a you know his dramatic license has no expiration date, so. Well, we're so. talking about the song that you performed with uh, Neil Patrick Harris as the balladeer, was yes. it? Yes. Yeah, from the revival a year or so ago at, by the Roundabout here in New York, Studio 54, just mm-hmm. a very, um, wow, dramatic is an, an understatement, a very scary sort of a uh, sort of a show and a, a production. Yeah, it was. that was a thrilling thing to be a part of, and yeah. another extraordinary ensemble. Why don't we listen to the song yourself okay. as John Wilkes Booth and the balladeer Neil Patrick Harris. From Assassins, Michael Cerverus as John Wilkes Booth and Neil Patrick Harris as the balladeer Stephen Sondheim's work. You've been doing a lot of Sondheim work, both on Broadway and you've done a number of performances with the Ravinia Festival mm-hmm. out, out in Chicago. Are yeah, you, I have to say, I did, I did actually do a happy, cheery character uh, in the past year. Um, I did uh, Hapgood at, at Ravinia in Anyone Can Whistle. Um, but see, when I do the happy stuff, I do it out of town and it never gets <laughs> so recorded. No so nobody, nobody actually knows. The secret. You, I mean, are you in a Sondheim groove now? How does that that music speak to well, you? How do, how do you find then when you go and play with your rock band? Where 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 is your head then? It's when I play with the band. It's it's not so jarring to me. Um, uh, what's what I found is jarring sometimes is doing other musical theater composers' work. I did a, a reading of 110 in the Shade with Otter McDonald and um, Lonnie Price directing at the Roundabout uh, last spring, I think, or a little while ago. Um, and uh, and I'm working on I'm doing a reading with Hal Prince of this uh, new musical he wants to do about Kurt Weill and Madalena called Love Music, um, and I find when I sing normal composers' work, I it takes me a while to figure out how to sing it because I'm, you know, I'm looking for strange intervals or or sudden changes in meter or usually. I mean, once you sort of get settled into doing Sondheim, you start to instinctively your ear starts to go for where his melodies go, even though he writes in such a variety of ways depending on the character and the song and the piece but um um but when when i go to sing just simple nice songs i i i takes me a while to figure out how to sing them because i'm i'm not, i'm not used to if it if it seems right it's usually wrong in sondheim if it's if it feels like that's that's the wrong interval it's probably what he's written which is not uh you know which is not the case with a lot of other composers and I'm sure it's daunting, especially that first time, to stand in front of Stephen Sondheim and sing his music. Yeah. But in the same way, that must have been quite remarkable when you were doing Tommy, to stand in front of Pete Townsend, I, one of the great figures of 60s rock, and sing his music. Well, that's, you know, that's, what I'm, that's what I mean, I guess, when I say that, you know, I look for these challenges or these, these things that... Uh, that terrify me, and that's what I go do. And I I remember vividly both instances of singing for those two men because they were both you know iconic figures to me. Um, in in Pete's case, we had done 
we were at La Jolla doing the the first production of it there, and he hadn't been around for rehearsals there. Um, we were at the point where we had finished rehearsals in the room. We were doing the the sits probe with the orchestra, the first time singing through with the orchestra, um, or the band in this case, really. And um, so we were in a little concrete room, and uh, and playing through the score and Pete was supposed to be there but his plane was arriving late so we started anyway because we had to had to get going and so all of the anticipation and nerves leading up to that thinking we were all going to be singing for him had started to dissipate because we were starting to get into singing the show and he didn't arrive until the door opened as the vamp was starting for I'm free so he walked in and I had to sing like he sat down in the chair and I started singing which I guess in a way was probably better because I didn't have any time to kind of you know, my cue was coming up and I just had to go um, but it was it was terrifying and um, and then he was around a lot for the rest of that production and and then was very much involved in the New York production and after I had been cast and just was decided that I was going to be doing it on Broadway he took me out to dinner and he said look I I can't tell you how to act this part but I can teach you how to be a rock star so mm-hmm. I'll teach you how to be a rock star so he took me over to England and I spent a week with him and hung out in the studio with him and he took me around and showed me where you know the who had played their first gigs and where the house where he grew up and introduced me to his mates from the old days and all of all of it designed to make me feel some ownership and some sense of authority and legitimacy doing this part because he you know he's he's a really smart guy and he's sensitive to to the fact that anybody trying to sing these songs after Roger Daltrey is going to be intimidated but the last thing you can do is stand up there and look like you're not sure you have a right to be there so that was this enormous gift that he gave me by by doing that um and then with Sondheim well the first time I ever sang sang for him actually was at the audition for um Passion the original production of Passion. I was in Tommy at the time and on a two-show day went over to I can't remember, the Schubert Theater, I think. Um, and, and it may have also been the first time I ever auditioned on a Broadway stage for a Broadway show. Usually it was like in a rehearsal room or something. So that was, you know, that was kind of like chorus liney enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Steve and James Lapine were back in the dark and um, and I was just sort of aware of his presence, but I didn't really come into contact with him so much. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't cast at the time. Um, I think my voice really wasn't ready to do it, and, and I probably wasn't, you know, I think emotionally I I certainly wouldn't have given the performance that I have subsequently given. Um, so when I then did Passion at the Kennedy Center, um, Steve came down for one of the first run-throughs, I guess, in the rehearsal space. Um, And that was a situation where it was another rehearsal room, and usually rehearsal rooms are mostly taken up by the stage area, and there's just a little, like a foot or two, and then you have the table where the director and everybody else is. And so I was was lying. We were rehearsing some little thing before we did the run-through, and it was something that I wasn't involved in so, but I was just left lying on the bed prop. And so I was 
I was lying there reading the paper and people rehearsing somewhere else and wasn't really paying attention. I knew Steve was coming later, but, you know, we hadn't started the run through that, so I figured he wouldn't be there. And, and after a while, I just sort of looked up and there he was, like four feet away from me. And I felt like a complete boob having just been lying there reading the paper while, uh, mm-hmm. while he was there. And then, then we did the run through for him and, and it was really nerve wracking, but, but as with all of his pieces, it's so, it takes so much of your concentration and so much out of you just to get through it. At a certain point, you ha- only have a little bit of brain left to be nervous about, about being watched by your creator. And, um, and, uh, at the end he got up and it was, um, Judy Kuhn and Rebecca Luker and I, um, and he got up and just embraced us and with tears in his eyes and said, you know, how pleased he was. And he said, you, you've all been so meticulous with, with every note and every, every rhythm and everything. And you can just, you can afford to relax now and make it, make it your own. But we were so happy that, that, you know, he was so pleased with it. And I mean, I think really everybody who does Sondheim shows really above anything else wants to make him happy, you know. Well, in the case of your current production, Sweeney Todd or Assassins, what sort of input did Sondheim give you on those shows? Um, well, he's he's was around uh, a lot in Assassins and and was around a lot in Sweeney too. Actually, increasingly over time, because I think he has just enjoyed seeing what it what it's becoming and and has wanted to be involved in in the process. I mean, he generally he comes and just sort of takes notes and will give those notes through the music director or the uh, or the director because he sort of respects that chain of command and stuff um, and and you can never you can never guess what things he is going to pick out as needing to be changed and which things he's not at all concerned about um, but uh, but he's he has been and he continues to come periodically just to uh, I think to enjoy the experience of of the audience enjoying his piece as the way that they do in such an extraordinary way in our show, but uh, but also to keep an eye on things. And he um, he also was really exciting with um, well with assassins too. He and John Weidman were around and tweaking and and refining things. And um, and with Sweeney, he's actually rewritten some lyrics to to suit our production things that were sort of the way they were because of the staging before, but because our staging is different. Um, things, for example, about the chair, which because we don't actually have a barber chair. So um, he's arranged things to help the audience understand it a little more easily. And, and in some cases, things that, you know, it's amazing. 25 years down the line, he's still trying to get it better, you know. Well, going into this new production, a very different production of Sweeney Todd, what do you think Sondheim's original thoughts were? What, do you think he embraced it, or was he a little bit trepidatious about it? Of think? this production? Yeah. The, well, um, Being so different than previous productions. Yeah. Well, he he keeps a close eye and, and has very um, uh, strong opinions about what, with major productions of, of his works, you know, he they don't happen without his approval. And so as this production was being done first at the Watermill and then sort of working its way into the West End, they really needed to have his approval before they could bring it into the West End. So he 
flew over and and saw it and I think with because there had been originally there was more cut and there were they only had three weeks to put the whole thing together originally so um, I think there were some sections or some songs and some other things that had been cut that he was concerned about just seeing it on paper and having no idea what the actual concept was um, and so he went over to see it and was apparently so thrilled and excited about it that he said if this is going to be revived in New York this is the only production I want revived mm-hmm. so it it has more than his full support you know and his endorsement it really is because he wants this production there that it is there before we draw to a close and we've only got a couple more minutes I want to continue on the rock and musical theater theme and ask you about uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch which you succeeded John Cameron Mitchell in that and yeah. played it for an extended period, both here in New York, Los Angeles. In London. And West in London. End, yeah. How was, how was going into that show? Well, that was another one of those terrifying things. I had, I had gone to see – I had known John for a long time, and we had done workshops and things together. And, um, and I was actually – he and I were doing a workshop of what became this Queen musical, this We Will Rock You thing, which when we were doing it, wasn't the story was actually about the band getting together and it wasn't this sort of space fantasy thing that it apparently became i haven't seen it but uh um so we were in that and it was around the time that he was getting ready to do hedwig at jane street so i went to see it and just thought well here is my answer to how you combine rock and roll and theater it's all of the all of the things i'd seen before and not been satisfied by everything was answered in this production. And I just thought it was so thrilling and so smart and so entertaining and absolutely brought theater and rock music together without compromising on either account. And I saw it another three times. I tend to go, when I find something I like, I go see it a lot. Um, So I went to see it a bunch of times, never for a second thinking, A, that anybody but John would do it, and B, certainly never thinking that I would do a one-man show in, you know, several blonde wigs and um, and then John called me because he was taking a break in August of that first year and he just was exhausted and needed to take a month off and he said I've been trying to think who could do this who gets it and who has the skill set you know, to do it and he said I can't think of anybody but you would you want to do it and I I think I said I had to think about it, but I knew I was going to do it because it made my stomach hurt to think about it. And I thought, well, that means I probably have to do it then. And none of us knew initially whether whether anybody but John could do it. It was so seemed so much a creation of his particular sensibility, and and I think everybody and nobody more than John was ecstatic to find that it could be done by other people. John wasn't going to have to do this the rest of his life for it to have a life. Um, and it's it was a just ex- extraordinary adventure and such a, a growing experience and learning experience um, and so freeing. And in, in a lot of ways, a lot of my first conversation with John Doyle when I first met him about uh, doing Sweeney was about my experience doing Hedwig, which had been because it's such pure theater. It's such, you know, we're not going to hide the strings. We're not going to make you try to believe that, you know, things are 
flying or things are are you know magically appearing. We're going to show you all of the strings and what you see is is what you hear and what you get. And and that's so much John's both John's philosophy um, that I had been a little disappointed in other things since Hedwig that hadn't been that kind of in the moment experience with the audience completely acknowledged and the artificiality and the artifice of performance and theater theater um, so so clearly kind of laid out and yet that's what's uh, the most amazing thing is that you have you're sitting in a room with other human beings and you're telling a story and we all know that I'm just a guy in a dress or I'm in a guy with a razor or whatever and I'm going to walk out the door and go to you know the restaurant around the corner but at the same time it allows for genuine magic that's completely the audience's invention the audience's imagination and just on the pure it's the purest kind of of theater and so that Hedwig experience was the last thing I I'd, I'd really experienced that with before uh, before Sweeney We've been talking about uh, Sondheim, obviously, about a couple rock musicals, Hedvig and Tommy. Then there's Titanic, Maury Esten's show. Right. Um, that was well, that was another that was another one of these cases where I came back from having done Tommy in Germany, which I I went from Broadway and did it the first European company of that for a year and a half and lived in Europe for a long time. And I came back and said, right, okay, now I've done I've done. Uh, Musicals enough, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do something else now. And um, and then Titanic came along, and it was an entirely different kind of singing to what I'd been doing. It was more like at Yale, I had studied classical voice. I'd gone to the music school and just uh, enlisted the help of a, a German leader singer who taught opera students most of the time, but taught a few undergraduates. And so I sang Schumann and Samuel Barber and. Um, so this was actually using that training in a way that I hadn't done before. And Richard Jones, the director, was a an English opera director primarily, and he was a fascinating guy, and Maury's score was beautiful. And even though it was sort of more conventional than people thought uh, I was, I think part of what appealed to me was sort of turning people's ideas of who I was and what I did on its head because here was this rock and roll kid who was going to sing really conventional traditional broadway music and um but again in a in a weird concept show about a sinking boat and with this very formalized set and that was an amazing experience also because i'd never tommy was sort of hatched completely from the very beginning it was the first the script we had on the first day of rehearsal was almost identical to what we had on opening night. Titanic underwent huge changes, and and big check sections were cut or added, and characters began as principal characters and got whittled down to to uh, sort of supporting characters. and um, And it was fascinating to watch that process of construction, which I guess is the way it used to be. You know, you used to get that out of town usually in New Haven, but uh, um, that's that was the process of making a musical. And Peter Stone and Maury Estin and, and the input of the Dodgers, uh, uh, the producers, were all, you know, that was the old school crafting a show. And what we ended up with 
was extraordinary. And what we had along the way was extraordinary, but it wasn't necessarily commercially viable. And and they managed to sort of do something that that satisfied both things in the end, and that was an amazing process to be a part of. Well, between Titanic and uh, Sweeney Todd and Assassins and Tommy and uh, Hedvig, I think in the last hour or so, not even including the uh, the rock musician part of you, we've learned an awful lot of different aspects of Michael Cerveris. <laughs> I, I think I confuse people a lot, but uh, I like them to never know quite what to expect when they come see me. Well, Michael Cerveris, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. This is Howard Sherman for the American Theatre Wing, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing are available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.